You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Richie, what happened? What happened there? The motorbike just stopped right in front of us. Was that a fan as well? I don't know. What the hell happens now? Cause of. The motorbike crashed us. Oh shit, no, we didn't know that. It can't. This can't be right, huh? No. That was Richie Port at Chalet Reynard as I sprinted after him at the finish of stage 12 of the 2016 Tour de France. It was a day of high drama and a shortened stage one, though few would remember, by Thomas de Ghent. Strong winds meant they couldn't go to the summit of Mont Ventoux. That meant bigger crowds, fewer barriers and chaos. Port was one of three riders with Chris Froome and Balcomolema to ride into the back of a TV motorbike. In the crash, Froome in the yellow jersey broke the stay of his bike. With his team car stuck a long way behind, he decided not to wait, but to run. There's been a crash further back down the road. There has been a crash, and it's involved Bob Monomer, I can tell you. We'll get... They're riding into it. This is a that disaster. That is the aftermath of it. You can see the, the white jersey there delayed by that crash. I can just see Chris Freeman ahead on his bike, running with his bike, trying to get back on. So this is an absolute disaster. That front trio of front riders have been held up. Not just held up, they've ridden into the back of a motorbike. And now it's neutral service. I'm not trying to help who the There's hell... Richie Port. His bike has... Uh, well, it's not working for him at the moment. And once again, Richie Port is losing time because of a malfunctioning bike. And this time... Oh, he's running. Chris Froome is running up Montfontoux without a bike. How far has he got to go? He's got to wait for a teammate to get to him. So, my goodness, I've never seen anything like this. His bike's always broken. The team cars are so far behind. The team cars are miles behind. So he can't do anything about this at the moment. His bike is on a team car. He's got to wait for one of his teammates to get up there. There's Richie Port again getting held up by a car. Chris Froome can't do anything. The yellow jersey is running up the Tour de France. It was Bastille Day and the strangest day anyone could remember on the Tour de France. And it was quickly overshadowed by tragedy. That evening, not far away in Nice, a terrorist drove a truck into a crowd of people celebrating Bastille Day on the Promenade des Anglais, killing 87 and injuring 434. The next day, understandably, we weren't talking about the surreal spectacle of the yellow jersey of the Tour de France running up Mont Ventoux. We were paying our respects to the victims of that awful attack. Five years on, the Tour de France will return to Ventoux on Wednesday for Stage 11. Now, with contributions from Port, Froome, De Ghent, Serge Powles, who was second on the day, and Seb Piquet, the voice of race radio, who was in the car following the favourites and had an eagle-eyed view of the incident, let's revisit one of the most surreal days in Tour de France history. There were people everywhere. It was, yeah, it was pretty chaotic. I don't think I really realized that it was bigger than, than normal because I never, I'd never done the move on two. Only in moments like that do you really find your true desire, how much you really want to win. We were all astonished. The crowd was just all on the road and the motorway just stopped right in front of us. We had nowhere to go. It was a Ventoux like uh, I had never seen. Seb Piquet. The amount of people, especially at that place. But what you have to understand is there isn't always a reason for things like that happening. But for, for that day, there was a reason. Um, the day before, first of all, 
uh, we had news that uh, the conditions were not good, were not going to be good for that Ventoux stage with a lot of wind at the top. And the decision was taken, I believe, late uh, on the previous day uh, to have that finish at Chalet-Renard because you couldn't go to the top. It was really too windy. I know there were some skeptical people, but it was very, very, very windy up there. And and so basically all the all the spectators that were supposed to be from Chalet-Renard to the top were all went to the forest part and close to Chalet-Renard where all the incidents happened. Um, and add to that the fact that the barriers couldn't be placed at that place uh, because it was too windy. So you had people uh, on the side of the road who were uh, not exactly on the side of the road, but sometimes uh, on the road itself and very close to the riders. So that's um, one of the first reasons. And yeah, indeed, when when we went up in the car, um, uh, suddenly, you know, suddenly when you get out of the uh, the forest part, the most difficult part. There were people everywhere. It was, yeah, it was pretty chaotic. Thomas de Ghent. It already started with the stage being uh, shortened to uh, Chalet Renard, six kilometers, seven kilometers uh, less. It was a really good day for me. I was in the right breakaway and we had 18 minutes, so we could uh, focus on the, on the stage win and uh, had uh, good enough legs to win. Serge Powell's. I don't think I really realized that it was bigger than than normal because I never I'd never done the Mont Ventoux, but of course it was it was really crowded. It's it's almost the reason why I became a cyclist, you know, because I when I was young I I went to watch a tour. Uh, I think when I was ten or eleven years old, I I went to watch a tour with my parents in France, and and that was when when I uh, started to fall in love with the sport, you know, when I. Uh, when I saw Indurain and, and uh, Pantani and these guys climbing um, on the Col de la Colombière within, uh, I mean, in between people, and um, yeah, so it was it was actually amazing to to be up there now with uh, with the best riders myself. I mean, it was disappointing um, because, moreover, my. My wife was there the whole day following the tour uh, with Belgian television. And so, um, yeah, they actually were making a, a documentary about her following me the whole day. So it was like, I mean, it was a perfect scenario to make it a really beautiful story. And then there was this anticlimax uh, when I became second. And I also realized afterwards that it was probably the biggest chance in my career to, to win a stage in the tour and especially on a on a mythical finish like uh, Ventoux. Here's Chris Froome speaking to Dutch journalist Dan Hackenberg. It was absolute chaos on the, on the stage. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course. Obviously the finish had been moved because of, of the, the, the crazy winds that, uh, that were up on the stage. So there weren't, uh, I don't think there were the normal barriers that would have coming into the last three Ks of a mountaintop finish like that. Yeah. And uh, the crowds were a lot bigger uh, because everyone had moved down the mountain so we were behind the favorites group so favorites group with uh molema richie port i think quintana was there and of course chris froome and the battle had started um so we were getting enthusiastic because it's always entertaining and there were a lot of people and it was getting really 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 complicated to go through all the fans um, you know, the, 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 like the crowd just opened up for 
the favorites group, like it often happens in, in mountain stages or on Ventoux. Suddenly, I, the, the car had to brake hard. We didn't know exactly what was happening, but we noticed that uh, there was a crash in, in front. It was maybe like 40 meters ahead of us and um, <laughs> kind of like a, a traffic jam. Uh, several cars stuck, uh, the bike uh, stopped, and we could um, we could only see f far away a few riders on the ground. Eventually, with the car, we managed to go through because the idea is when there's a crash uh, in, in the race, we try to overtake as, as quickly as possible, not to have any issues with the people coming from behind. So we managed to overtake a few of the guys on the ground. Uh, we managed to overtake the bike that was stopped on the side, if, I, if I'm correct. And then suddenly, this guy in yellow running. And I remember on Radio Tour just going, Chris Froome est à pied, Chris Froome est à pied, il court, il court, il n'a pas de vélo. So that was pretty crazy. Just seeing that, yeah, the, the yellow uh, jersey clumsily running. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, it was, it was chaos because it's something that you obviously uh, never see on races like that. And we were just behind him. He was running. He, he looked, you know, he looked, he looked pretty focused on what he was doing, just running to the finish. I don't know what was in his mind. I don't know if he thought that he could actually run to the finish without a bike. Um, and then when we were just next to him, I remember shouting to Froome, there's a Mavic car with spare bikes behind. There's a Mavic car with spare bikes behind. Obviously, uh, that was pretty pointless because he did go to the Mavic bike uh, car and bike um, and he didn't have the correct uh, shoes for the pedals. Definitely the most crazy moment of racing I've been in and uh, I think only only in moments like that do you really find <laughs> uh, your, your true desire, how much you really want to win and that day obviously I, I didn't want to lose and uh, it just seemed logical in my mind just to keep moving forward even if it was running. Richie Port. That's just him, isn't it? Let's get to the finish line as, as quick as you can. And, yeah, I guess that's how you, what you have to do to, to win the race, isn't it? So the, and it was like a, a sort of a mobile home uh, where we could uh, change our clothes and uh, I saw the images of him running and we, we didn't know what happened. Maybe somebody stole his bike was our first start. We don't know. Uh, he had a, a bit of enemies uh, at that time. But that was strange, strange footage. But then you saw the crash and uh, why, why he abandoned his bike. So it still was a strange decision to just abandon his bike and start running. He could also have waited for the car. What I was thinking, I mean, it would not have happened to Miguel in the Rhine, let's say. You know, <laughs> he would not have been running like this. It's typically through me. Um, but it also shows his, his, how do you say, determination to, you know, to achieve his goal and to go straight to where he needs to be, you know, at the finish line as fast as he can. And uh, yeah, but it was it was not really good publicity for cycling, let's say, I, I, I thought. We were all astonished. I mean, we, we couldn't believe it. We were really astonished trying to trying to get things organized, but there's not much you could do. It's just we overtook Froome. We told the Mavic to take care of, of, of Froome. And then uh, we went past because we had to we had to carry on. We had to carry on following whoever was in front of us, probably Molema or Yates. Honestly, there was not much we, we could do. Just tell just tell Mavic uh, to 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 stop the Froome, which was um, pointless. Froome is uh, 
run on, on Mont Ventoux also is part of, the, of that whole story and probably why it also was a, a mythical stage again. But it was something that we had never seen before. So, you know, uh, we were all, uh, Thierry Gouvenou and the, and the driver and the president of the jury, we were all astonished. One moment they started thinking what they could eventually do um, if he lost time. Because because we noticed that the uh, the accident was due to a, um, uh, uh, a motorbike, uh, not not an organization motorbike, but a TV motorbike. So I think they probably started thinking about um, the rules and the rule book. They knew that uh, they probably had to see uh, some some TV footage to take a decision, and we had to wait for the gaps and and, and see if, if if there would be big enough gaps. And then eventually, Froome did uh, get a bike, did. Uh, overtake us again and we stayed behind him until the finish i believe so chris Broom has now lost a minute and a half to barker mollimer and time to all the other riders on that mountain he shakes his head and all we can say is that was not his fault i think everybody would agree that that, that, that cannot stand uh, and did cross the line and then they took that famous decision You are listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Hi everyone, Sam Brand here from Team Nova Nordisk. Uh, I'm getting ready for my first race since the Tour of Belgium. Uh, it's the GP Lugano uh, in Switzerland, just over the Italian border. Extremely strong field, so uh, I'm looking forward to, to getting stuck in. And you know, it's a it's a 23 kilometer lap, eight times, so it's going to be tough. Just in the team hotel, preparing for a good night's sleep. Really, a nice dinner. You know, the standard carb load before the race is uh, it's good always good food in italy so it's really nice some some good rice and pasta and some good meat so um legs feel good so let's see what we can do tomorrow and show what's possible with diabetes just had my numbers dropped to me um so pin them bags packed so we got a short transfer to the start tomorrow uh excited um making sure now getting into sort of race mode the night before um making sure my blood sugars are in range going into the into the night so uh so we're all ready to go tomorrow I spoke to the late Nicolas Portal, and um, and he kept on telling me, "Oh, yeah, they have to take a decision. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, they they have to give time back to Fru." That's what I remember of, of, of the conversation I had with uh, with Nico then. I think the only the only solution, uh, positive solution, was from the side of the sport to give to Richie Port and to Chris Froome the time of Molema because they were together in, at the moment when was the accident and we also gave the same time of group of Yates to Valverde, Quintana and, and uh, Van Garderen. Any change can have consequences and that's exactly what happens but honestly uh, well, you know it's, it's, it's first of all it's hard enough changing the finish of a, a stage um, so, so you can you can expect uh, consequences, and you can expect um, 
effects on on the race maybe not what happens but uh but what what i found pretty you know uh, the day before and, and even during the stage people were were criticizing um the organization saying yeah they should have gone to the top and 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 it would have been a different stage and we wouldn't have those issues with the spectators we went to the top after the stage was finished we we, we went right to the top of Ventoux, and there was a caravan lying on its side there was a guy on a motorbike his bike was on the side. There was so much winds uh, at the top that we, we uh, well, we knew that, um, <laughs> that the good decision had been taken. Unfortunately, um, it um, had some, some consequences. Nothing too bad, uh, fortunately. But yeah, honestly, it was very, very, very windy and it w- would have been impossible to finish at the top. I regard myself a winner of the Chalet Renard stage. It's not Mont Ventoux. We did uh, not enough kilometers uphill. We still did uh, a 10 kilometer climb and it's not the Mont Ventoux. Here's the anguish-sounding Richie Port at the finish on the day when it was still not clear whether he and Froome would be given the same time as some of the other contenders. Then after that we'll hear Port now, speaking on the phone just before the tour, reflecting on the episode five years on. The crowd was just all on the road and the motorway just stopped right in front of us. We had nowhere to go. The next minute, straight over the top of the motorbike, it was just a mess. And then what can you tell us about Chris Froome's involvement in that? What do you mean? Like, I mean, he's on my wheel, like, straight into me, and, you know, I don't know what they're going to do, but they need to do something about it, because it's not fair, you know. One minute we're 23 seconds in front, and the next thing, you know, for something so silly, uh, you know, everybody's back on us. Richie, it was one of your best days in the Tour de France up until that point, but it's obviously taken the gloss off it. I mean, for sure, but, I mean, that, that, that can't stand, it can't happen like that, I mean... Surely the jury has to look at it and use some sort of discretion because, I mean, if you can't control the crowds, what can you control, you know? And just on the wider issue, this is not the first time this year, is it? The motorbikes have caused problems. Yeah, I mean, it's not really the motorbikes, is it? It's uh, the crowd. I mean, they're just in your face the whole time, you know, pushing riders. And, uh, you know, it was just at the top there. I mean, that was just crazy. At the end of the day, yeah, we couldn't finish at the top because the wind was just so so strong. And but it was you know a little bit much, I guess, when you know you, you condense the crowd like that. Um, you know, and the, it was Bastille Day; they were all drunk and and all that. Like you know, it was a bit of an accident waiting to happen. And and you know, we were taking good time on everyone. Um, me, Mollimer and, and myself and then the next thing the motorbike like I didn't even have a chance to hit the brakes it was just you know one second it was just in front of us kind of protecting us a bit I guess from the crowds and, and then the next thing <laughs> we're all into the back of it and um, so I had to let the brakes off because the wheel was buckled and then the red commissaire's car jammed its brakes on just around the corner in front of me so I almost face planted into the back of that and then uh then when i went past through me he was you know obviously up in arms about it you know he said something i can't remember what he said now but some probably can't really repeat it anyway but i mean it was just a an unbelievable moment to be honest but um yeah it is a shame because i genuinely think we were going to take good time you know i 
had that punch on stage two as well there. So I think I was going to take good time back on on some of the GC guys. But uh, yeah, instead I was part of a, a story that we're still talking about five years later. You know, it was just, I don't know, a bit of a disaster um, and a bit of a shame. But, you know, I guess it, it's become a bit of a, an iconic um, image, you know, through me running up there in the in the yellow jersey, sheer panic on his face. It was, um, you know, one of the long-standing images of cycling. But let's hope that it's, um, you know, this year it can be a more straightforward affair. I, I don't know how straightforward two times up Vontu is because it's, you know, an absolute brute of a climb. So, yeah, let's let's uh, fingers crossed. Hope for for no drama on Vontu. No one had a clue what was, you know, and it wasn't until we arrived back at the hotel that we, you know, got the official word that, you know, we'd have the, the same time because after the crash and everyone went past us, we, you know, we, we did actually lose time. But, um, you know, thankfully, you know, it was no fault of our own or, you know, it was, wasn't a fault either of the any other riders or whatever. So I think the right thing happened. Look, I think that kind of, you know, puts everything in perspective. I think, you know, a heap of kids out, you know, celebrating Bastille Day and get, get you know, killed by a lunatic on the promenade there in Nice. It was, you know, you you very quickly forgot about the, you know, self-pity that you had yourself. You've been listening to Running Up That Hill, an episode of Kilometre Zero by the Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens. The commentary clips were from ITV Sport, and the voices were those of Ned Bolting and David Miller. Thanks very much indeed to them. This episode was produced by Adam Bowie. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.